You're now listening to The Limitless, the podcast between. This is Jason Horsley, and this week I'm talking to James Corbett. time is it there in, in Japan? It's just turned 10 a.m. Oh, good morning then. Yeah. All right, so uh, we're good to go. Just been catching up a little bit on your stuff. You have, you have as you know, a huge output. And, yes. uh, <laughs> <laughs> and overwhelming, I guess. Yeah, how long have you been doing this? <clears throat> I started the website in 2007. Um, I've been doing it full-time since 2011. Right. So as I said in that email, I mean, there's so many different points to get to. So I'm thinking that, I mean, maybe we we end up focusing on something specific if it comes up, um, whatever's, you know, seems most relevant right now. But I was thinking a good place to start would be on a more meta level, a more kind of general thing. And one of the things I thought that would be interesting to talk to you about is, is propaganda and the effects of propaganda. Because um, I've noticed you've talked recently, and perhaps for many years, I don't know about um, the way in which the powers that shouldn't be, as you call them, maintain their power and the hegemony in the world um, by, uh, I mean, largely via our consent. And that one of the elements of that, of how we continue to consent is this impression of legitimacy that they managed to create that somehow the authorities and the institutions and the system as a whole is uh, the the power that it wields is somehow legitimate yeah i'm sure you and i can agree that that's simply not the case exactly yeah um but that's one of the hardest things i think for people to see and i'm not sure what it takes, you know, how many different conspiracies, in quotes, or how many different parabuses people need to see to undermine that fundamental misguided trust in authority. Mm-hmm. And so one question I have for you, should I say it's very general, but have you thought, have you written, uh, talked about the long-term effects of being propagandized over, over decades, over generations, and how it hijacks our ability to think and to rationalize and to follow connections in a coherent way by undermining constantly our sense of what's real and, and what's true. Uh, yes, yes, I have. I've talked about this extensively in a number of different ways, um, but I keep going back to the literal book on propaganda by Edward Bernays, right. um, obviously published in 1928, so uh, almost a century old at this point. But I think in that book, he lays out some very important concepts that we need to understand when examining propaganda and the way it functions. And this coming from a time where the word propaganda wasn't tainted as it is in our current day and age. It was just the import, uh, the imparting of information to the masses. Right. Well, um, <laughs> that was the original meaning. And that's why there was openly a ministry of pro- propaganda in the British government and what have you in the First World War. It wasn't until the Second World War that it started to take on its current connotation as basically being convenient lies spread by the government to brainwash the masses. But it didn't have such a connotation back in that time. And so <clears throat> for people who don't know Edward Bernays, literally the uh, 
the, the godfather of the modern uh, PR sort of um, culture, and literally the nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud, mm -hmm. uh, his American nephew, who decided to employ a number of brainwashing tactics, essentially, um, from the the realm of psycho psychoanalysis and taking that uh, perspective on it. And uh, for all my misgivings about uh, Adam Curtis and his work in general, certainly um, the uh, three-part, I believe, BBC documentary on the century of the self, the first part of that three-part documentary was exceptionally well done and goes through the history of Bernays and what he was involved in and the ways that he employed psychoanalytic techniques to influence the masses, including such dramatic things as uh, being hired by... Uh, the American Tobacco Company or some, some corporation along those lines to try to break the taboo against women smoking mm -hmm. in public because, of course, that would very much broaden the market for, uh, uh, for tobacco sales. So in order to do this, as he himself relates, and you can watch his own interview that has been conducted uh, uh, by him, uh, with him by uh, 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 some sort of PR uh, museum, history museum or something. They, 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 there's a video you can watch of Bernays being interviewed um, towards the end of his life where he talks and almost gloats about his uh, tactics, including going, th thinking deeply about what the cigarette is and what it symbolizes, and then going to and speaking to psychoanalysts uh, uh, about this and determining that the, 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 the cigarette functions as a form of if not phallic, at least male, masculine power. And so he decided to put it in those terms that of the then current suffragette movement, that this is a way of grasping power back from the males and women can, can, can exert their power by smoking. So he staged this, choreographed this event at the uh, Easter Day Parade uh, in New York City in which he let the press know ahead of time, of course, there was going to be a, a moment of protest by the suffragettes. Uh, in, in the middle of the parade. And so he hired some models, some actresses or models or uh, beautiful women to to march in uh, along the parade route. And at a certain moment when all the cameras are, are gathered to rip out their cigarettes and start smoking as part of their challenge of male authority. And it was a, a remarkably successful. And uh, very shortly thereafter, it, it, that was covered by not only the New York press, but nationally. And very shortly thereafter, all the taboo was essentially broken and you had women uh, smoking areas in theaters and things like this that just hadn't existed before. So right. remarkably effective person. And that's that's kind of the way that he operated. But in propaganda in 1928, he, he wrote specifically that the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. Exceptionally important insight there, specifically about the manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses. That's, a, that's, that's the fundamental level at which propaganda works. There's the overt level where there's a specific message about a specific topic that we're supposed to take specific information and, and uh, believe that. But on a more fundamental level, this is about the way that we live our lives, our organized habits and opinions, our reflexive responses to the world. If those can be conditioned by propaganda, then the propagandist has really done their job. Because at that point, people don't need the constant reinforcement of the message. They have internalized it and will start to exert it. And in fact, 
start to police each other if they see someone else who's going against the whatever the group think at the moment is, whatever the propagandized political message of convenience is, if someone is going against that, people will automatically fight against that. Um, oh, that's not the way you're supposed to act. That's not what you're supposed to say. That's not what you're supposed to do. So the, the people who have been propagandized, to use a more current metaphor, might be like the agents in the, in the Matrix. Um, suddenly the agent pops out to try to police the people who are going against the system. And I think that's the level at which propaganda that, that's truly effective starts to function, that the propagandized not only, not only believe, but actively start to live that propaganda. Right. And do you think that part of that is that if people, I mean, part of propaganda, as you say, um, I mean, it's, it's become known now, it's the dissemination of lies, of persuasive lies. And so, of course, the obvious purpose of that is to persuade people to believe something that isn't true that you want them to believe because then you can manipulate them. But do you think there's a there's a subtler layer to this, which is, is if you can believe people, if you can persuade people to believe something that isn't true, you're, by definition or by extension, you're kind of interrupting their own ability to to gauge what is true as in people can refer to logic they can refer to instinct they can refer to an emotional sense intuition and so on to to tell what is true uh, and it the more that they believe things via cunning propaganda that aren't true the more that's going to kind of interrupt or counteract their own instincts and therefore I can see how there would be an accumulative effect there that they become more and more disconnected from their own felt, felt sense of what's true and as a result of that they would become more and more dependent on the powers that be to, to tell them what's happening. Yes, and that that's an insightful um, uh, observation and one that uh, again, to go back to, a, I think, a very familiar source, 1984, the concept of doublethink and the idea of holding two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time and trying to make them square is a form of insanity, but um, it's one that uh, operates on, a, on an unconscious level, a pre-conscious level, perhaps. Um, we don't even understand or know that we're doing it, but hmm. if you've internalized the propaganda, you are doing it. And I remember reading 1984 in junior high school and going, well, this is fun science fiction, but it's just science fiction. The world doesn't really operate like that. But now that unfortunately I've lived through the past uh, few decades, I can see, oh, this is exactly how it operates. And perhaps the glaring example of this is, of course, who was the big enemy that attacked us on 9-11-2001? It was Al-Qaeda. It was the Al-Qaeda uh, Al terrorist organization. These, This is the enemy, so we have to launch this war for the battle for civilization, blah, blah, blah. All of that but fast forward a decade, just a decade later, and the US government is actively supporting Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda affiliated groups in Libya and then in Syria, and don't even particularly hide this fact. I mean, even Hillary Clinton openly talking about this in Senate hearings a few years ago, well, uh, you know, they're, they're supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria. Are we supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria? Well, actually, yes, you are. And literally these groups just changed their names to try to make it seem more uh, uh, kosher in a sense, you know, this is okay. Oh, you know, it, it, we're not actually Al Qaeda. We've changed our name, but it's literally the same groups and that are now being actively supported by the U.S. And this gives rise to bizarre propaganda pieces, like one that I saw specifically in Foreign Affairs, which is the propaganda mouthpiece of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, 
it was about five years ago. I'd have to pull up the exact reference, but they literally had a, a article about um, why we need to support Al Qaeda, and it was talking about well, yes, but Al Qaeda are the good guys in this fight against Assad, so we we have to support them. It, 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 again, this is this is unthinkable from the perspective of that 2001 era where we are told this is the enemy and this is the reason we are fighting, and suddenly that morphs into well, in order to really get our enemies, we have to team up with this enemy. And unfortunately, again, I've seen a lot of the public just kind of go along with this. It's just like, okay, yeah, we're fighting the terrorists, but the terrorists keep changing, and sometimes we have to align with the old terrorists in order to fight the new terrorists, which, of course, we could even extend further back in time to the 1980s when Osama bin Laden was the golden boy in Afghanistan helping those freedom fighters uh, who Reagan had, of course, famously in the Oval Office proclaiming as freedom fighters the Mujahideen, you know, God is on your side and your fight is good because you're fighting the evil Soviets. Uh, I, again, the, the manipulation uh, of people's perception is so blatant, but it's apparently so effective. Again, double think in action. This is how it works. Yeah, well, one of the things that I think is central to how that double think works, which is um, that it's something probably that many of us learn by necessity very early on like if unbearable cognitive dissonance um, is a double bind is what's calling it when you're in a double bind uh, and you can't you have to actually um, maintain two contradictory ideas at the same time because it's, it isn't safe to side with either of them so for a child that's torn between its parents for example it can't really take sides either way so it has to just constantly maintain this state of cognitive dissonance and uh, I think if that's incepted in us very early on that, that actually hijacks our faculties at an early age and then we're already at a disadvantage and one of the things I think what you're describing there is that people are responding emotionally primarily like there's an emotional response and then there's emotional strategies that are being manipulated coping mechanisms if you will so I'm thinking with with um, Al-Qaeda I mean initially with 9-11 when they were targeted were blamed as the enemy and that narrative was pushed very persuasively one of the ways that it was pushed was by provoking or exploiting people's anger and their fear and their desire for revenge right and and so it seems that doubly bizarre yeah, that people are now being convinced that it's okay to side with al-qaeda because just 10 years ago or was it 20 years ago now isn't it um they were all fired up with hatred and rage and you would think that that would be something that whatever you know there's no forgiveness right and it never really did have a i suppose there was a revenge enacted wasn't there because there was the enactment of the supposed hunting and killing of osama bin laden but even that there was interesting waypoints along the way for example bush being questioned in a, uh, a press meeting a press conference about osama and well have you found him where is what's going on with osama and he says well i'm not really worried about osama he he said that in the middle of a press conference in uh, about the afghan conflict and what was going on there well osama we don't really care wow. that's not the point anymore now it's about the taliban and the goalposts kept shifting so even in that 10-year period where al-Qaeda was still presumably the enemy, yeah. uh, it wasn't really, and it was openly admitted. Well, we're not really concerned. And yet people were still 
there was still that demand for blood and there was still the celebration when Osama bin Laden was supposedly killed. This is the scapegoat mechanism. René Girard writes about this. When, you need, when there's disruption in a community or a nation, you need the scapegoat to bind it together. And Osama bin Laden, whether or not he was ever really found and killed, there was definitely a mainstream narrative. And then there was the movie about it, Zero Dark Thirty. So there was still, there was that feeling of the consolidation over the revenge you know, the scapegoating. And now, what are people angry about? Well, most seems to, a lot of people are angry about Trump. And then, so the Russians are now being demonized. And so the, there's an anger being directed in this, this, this direction. So then presumably people don't really care about Osama bin Laden anymore because their, their anger is being manipulated towards another target. And they're not really thinking about it logically. It's not a rational process that's going on in the mass mind, I think, is it? It's more of an emotive, reactive. One. Yes, and obviously this is well understood by social engineers. I think this, this process of scapegoating and always having that scapegoat to sacrifice um, mm. ritually in the minds of the public is an exceptionally important part of the way that power functions, um, political power functions in our day and age and has been for some time. And I think this has been well understood for quite a long time. This is why the Soviet Union was the boogeyman of the Cold War. And I say boogeyman because they were, again, explicitly built up with American military financing and technology through the Lend-Lease program that was explicitly in World War II aiding the Soviet Union, and they, they full well knew what they were doing. And from that point on, uh, before that point as well, and from that point on, uh, it was American uh, military financing, essentially, that helped the Soviet Union to, to continue to function as far as it did into the 1980s. And this has been well documented by researchers like Anthony Sutton writing about uh, the technology transfers to the Soviet Union and all this, which he was writing about in Hoover. And once he started to get a little bit too close to the wick, they, of course, they kicked him out of the Hoover Institution. And he had to become a wandering academic, as it were, um, uh, excommunicated from polite academic society, but still writing extremely detailed uh, reports about how Wall Street had essentially built up the Soviet Union to the extent that it was. And I think so. I think from that point, the Cold War, uh, an engineered conflict at a certain level, uh, the Al Qaeda, as I say, in the 1980s, uh, there was explicit CIA connection and, and support of Osama bin Laden and his group in Afghanistan, um, the Afghan Mujahideen, uh, uh, and also the, the, the sort of foreign fighters that uh, that Osama bin Laden was leading. Um, as opposed to the official narrative, where it was only the Afghans that were being aided, we now know that. Osama bin Laden and his group was also being aided by the CIA, um, which becomes, of course, the Al-Qaeda boogeyman of the 2001 era. And as you say, now it's the Russians are once again taking that place. Although I have a feeling that we are being directed towards a clash of civilizations 2.0 with China. And I think that's where things are heading in the 21st century. And once again, when you start to drill down on technology transfer, uh, financial agreements and other things, you, it, I think it's quite explicit that the rise of China as a world power in the past two decades was a very calculated maneuver. And it has been done explicitly by people um, like uh, the, the sort of the obvious gophers like uh, Kissinger and Brzezinski and others who explicitly participated in the opening of China in the 1970s, but also uh, banking powers behind them, including perhaps most notably David Rockefeller, 
literally meeting with uh, Rong Yi Ren back in 1980 uh, just to form the financial agreements that became the backbone for the infrastructure that became the technology transfers that became the Chinese juggernaut that we know today. Again, I think we are being engineered into a new Cold War scenario. And it's, I think, important for the would-be directors of society to always have that that uh, that enemy. There's the main enemy that we're supposed to be directing our attention to, and there's one on the back burner that they're sort of getting ready to to launch into the public consciousness uh, as the as the need arises. And uh, once you know that, it's actually fairly straightforward to see this happening. So people are feigning shock at the way the trade war is going with China, but myself and many other people, to be sure, um, have talked about this since at least since the Trump administration came in and started appointing all these China hawks uh, in, in key positions. It's quite obvious they're prepping the the, uh, the public for the next big boogeyman clash.
remember having dreams about war with China in the 90s and wondering, I mean, there were the kind of dreams that made me wonder, like, what is that? You know, is that is that the future? Do you, um, I mean, I know there's a danger with this kind of research that speculation can, of course, be, be a trap, but it can also be useful. And um, do you speculate, and if so, what 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 are your speculations about um, how long term some of these plans are of social engineering? Yeah, well, I, yeah. There, to some extent, that's speculation. To some extent, we can rely on actual writings of some mm. of these people and to to see that this has been planned out for a very long time. One one book that I go back to um, quite a bit is uh <laughs> i always forget his name it's either charles darwin galton or charles galton darwin <laughs> i can't remember if he's from the darwin side of the family or the galton side of the family right. but it doesn't really matter because it's one big intermarried family because of course darwin and, and galton families were instrumental in the formation of eugenics in the late 19th century uh, mm. coined by francis galton who was right. of course a uh, cousin of charles darwin and uh one of their progeny um charles Galton, Galton Darwin. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm literally <laughs> messing up their names. Anyway, you can look it up. Uh, he wrote yeah. a book called The Next Million Years, right. where he was talking about how it, it takes a million years for, for evolution to do its work and to change a species into something else. But now that we have technology, we can do it remarkably more quickly, maybe in a matter of generations. And how do we do this? Well, we can start by tinkering with the genetic, well, not the genetic makeup. They were talking about uh, chemical injunctions at that time, uh, which was a, a topic picked up on by um, uh, Bertrand Russell uh, later on in the century, talking about the scientific dictatorship and how mm -hmm. in the future it'll be possible through diet injections and injunctions to form the type of person that uh, a, a dictator would love to have, essentially sheep who would not be able to rise up against their master any more than actual sheep could rise up against the practice of eating mutton, i.e. you are dinner on the table for the scientific dictators of the future. So this, I think, has been the end goal for quite a long time. Now, of course, someone like Bertrand Russell is putting it in the context of, oh, this is we have to avoid this. This is not what we want. But he was talking explicitly about how it was going to be done, essentially. Yeah. Um, also, people like Aldous Huxley writing Brave New World, but talking in great detail towards the end of his life about uh, the scientific experiments that were on, uh, undergoing, that they were undergoing in that time, 50, 60 years ago, nearly, um, towards the manipulation of, of our, our minds, essentially. Um, I, I, again, I'm sure you know about the, the, the ultimate revolution lecture that he gave and talking about the various experiments at that time, talking about electrodes planted into mice brains and things like this. But of course, we know that the research has progressed since then about mm -hmm. how to essentially reward behavior you want uh, with certain electrical stimulus or, or to discourage other behavior. Uh, Jose, Jose Delgado in the bull uh, charging and press a button on a remote control and suddenly the bull stops charging that type of technology again is half a century old by this point so we know that uh, they, the uh, the scientific elite have been talking about this and thinking about it for at the very least half a century maybe a century if we go back to Charles Galton Darwin um, and, and that is the long term goal of this and a lot of things that seemed crazy when they were first being proposed are now almost quotidian um, go back, for example, to the founding of the technocracy movement, 
um, Technocracy Inc. specifically in the 1930s, co-founded by Howard Scott, who was essentially a charlatan, uh, and how uh, M. King Hubbard, who people might know as Hubbard's Peak, he was a geophysicist working for the uh, uh, Shell uh, Corporation in the 1950s, who came up with Hubbard's Peak and Peak Oil, uh, essentially as we know it today. Back in the 1930s, he was co-founding Technocracy Inc. with Howard Scott, where the idea was essentially that the technocratic elite were going to rule over society, the technate, um, by administering society perfectly. They were going to steward over the economy and balance production and consumption perfectly and electronically and blah, blah, blah. And if you actually read the technocracy study course that M. King Hubbard penned, it's insanity from the perspective of the 1930s. It would require real-time, continuous, 24-7 surveillance of the entire economy and everything happening in it, everything that's produced, everything that's manufactured, everything that's bought, everything that's consumed, and the entire life cycle of every product in order to understand how energy was being used and how best to balance, you know, load and all of this. Total insanity from the perspective of the 1930s. Right. Actual, it's coming to pass in 2019. We are on the cusp of the Internet of Things and the ability to literally implant chips in every single item that's manufactured. And now with IPv6, there's enough addresses that we can literally have an address for every single thing that has ever been manufactured in the history of humanity and everything in the foreseeable future. Hey, perfect. Now we have this idea of the Internet of Things coming in, which is exactly what the technocrats were lusting after in the 1930s. So we know this is the direction that they've been steering society or trying to steer society for the better part of a century, at least. And a lot of things that seemed crazy in the past are becoming more and more normalized. Hmm. So what's your view of Bertrand Russell then? Because I've written about him also, and I um, I looked through scientific outlook. I mean, a lot of the research I did, I did online because I was really, there were so many different you know, things I had to look into. And I, I was basically mapping the Fabian Society because of my fa I found out my family was connected to them and well, on, on my grandfather, paternal grandfather's side. And I came across the scientific outlet. My, my grandfather corresponded with Bertrand Russell, so I was also interested for that reason. And I was just reading sections of the scientific outlet, and I was quoting them because of what you were saying. They seemed to be a blueprint for mm -hmm. this future society, and it was very dystopian, it was very dark, and it seemed to be very anti-human. And um, But at a certain point, I realized that there were other passages in the book where he was sort of offering these disclaimers and saying of course this would be absolutely terrible and we must avoid this but um, and I got some criticism initially when I was quoting these passages as as if he had written a blueprint for future society by Bertrand Russell fans who were saying no you don't understand you, you stupid conspiracy theorist he was a humanitarian he was a wonderful man etc etc and my point my response was well but if I was able to read entire passages and not have the slightest inkling that they were in any way cautionary because they just read like blueprints, then isn't it possible that he was actually writing them as blueprints merely with two audiences or at least two audiences in mind? Yes, yes, exactly. And your, um, your experience there uh, with Russell is exactly my experience with Aldous Huxley. I often talk about the ultimate revolution and the things that he was talking about towards the end of his life and what he was encoding in Brave New World. And I will always get kickback from some people in the audience, Huxley fans who are saying, no, 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 you don't understand. He was warning against it. 
And my response is essentially like yours. Of course, it was always framed with disclaimers. Oh, this is this is terrible. But in the future, we will be able to do this. And there, I think there are telling moments in some of his uh, extemporaneous speeches where you, I, I think he, the the mask slips, and you can almost hear the delight in Aldous Huxley's voice as he's framing this. Now, I haven't done as much research into to Russell to be able to talk about that in any depth. But that's my sense with a lot of these. Um, a lot of these researchers, in fact, you could even make the same argument for Zbigniew Brzezinski and uh, the um, uh, uh, Between Two Ages, America in the Coming Technotronic Era, um, where again, a lot of the passages are absolutely chilling if you read them in isolation, talking about the things that will be possible in this Technotronic Era and the, uh, the elimination of you know, human freedom, essentially. But don't worry, I mean, if you read the full passage, he's talking about how this is, oh, this is part of something we have to avoid, but this is what's coming. And I think you're exactly right. It's the, it's the idea of writing for two, two audiences. Of course, in the fuller context, it's going to have that disclaimer, but there are, it is essentially a blueprint and it's talking a, a, about it. And, and uh, I can speak at least with some degree of detail to the Huxley case, because I've watched the interviews with him, I've listened to the, the, the conversations, uh, I've listened to the lecture, where the delight in his voice at these possibilities is palpable. You can, you can sense it in a way. And again, he's not going to come out and say, I want to be a scientific dictator in a dictatorship. But I think that is the sense that I get from his work. It's also possible they're divided, isn't it? They might actually, I mean, just like all of us, they might have, I mean, I think Bertrand Russell expressed, maybe Huxley did too, I don't know, at different points, but, or at least hinted at, um, kind of horror the very ideas that he was presenting I mean not just as disclaimers but as in I mean I know Russell at a certain point I think it was the the book that followed the scientific outlet he, he explicitly stated that although this might seem horrific to have a completely scientifically controlled society in which human beings were reduced to to slaves essentially it was necessary as a precursor for a truly free society he said something like we need a couple of hundred years of complete scientific slavery and totalitarianism and then <laughs> once people have been totally conditioned to be servile then, then, we, <laughs> then we can let them be free I yeah suppose. of course it's like every such philosophy that's ever been proposed it's always framed in the best possible way and it's going to lead to utopia you just have to go through X to get Y. You just have to have the dictatorship of the proletariat and then the state will melt away and we'll have communist utopia or however it's been framed many, many different times by many different philosophers over many different centuries. And they tend to lead to the same place, which is getting stuck on that transitionary phase. Oh, it's just a temporary dictatorship of the proletariat. Just oh, it's a just a little bit of years. scientific dictatorship, yeah. but then it'll be all right. Yeah. Well, do you think that we're seeing now, I mean, obviously we're seeing in terms of the way that society and technology is unfolding, we're seeing the blueprint becoming manifest. But do you think also another way in which we're seeing this is in the way that people have been indoctrinated, the values that they've assumed in terms of what they believe in? Like they believe in individual freedom, for example, in this very perversely contradictive way that actually makes them very susceptible to totalitarian thinking. Uh, yes, yes, I think so. And this is something that really struck me um, when I was doing my research for the World War I conspiracy, a documentary that I released late last year that I've been researching for a number of years now, because I find the parallels between World War I era and the buildup to World War I and what we're living through right now to be fascinating and eerie but um, one of the things that really struck me in that research was 
looking at the ways, uh, specifically in the American context, the transformation of American society um, and thinking uh, in the through the the emergency and crisis of war, and how that really helped to transform American society in certain specific ways. And uh, this is something that's been written about in great detail about the the Leviathan state and the growth of uh, the state through through warfare. Um, not exactly a breakthrough concept, but when you really start to look at the specifics and how, for example, I mean, the Espionage Act, you know, currently in the news because of Assange and everything, of course, does date back to 1917 and, and World War One, And um, it's just one example of many, many different things that were enacted right at that time. There were a number of states that were passing laws against even speaking German in public and things like this. It was really testing the boundaries of how far people would go because of the crisis situation. Again, it's a crisis we have to respond. So let's, let's see how far we can take it. And the, the, I, I think that's laid the seeds, planted the idea for what became in the 1930s, the New Deal. Well, capitalism has failed. So now we need to start in, enacting the nanny state. And again, something that keeps striking me from my research is the way the things that were looked at with horror in by previous generations are accepted completely without thought by current generations, like back when the US government was uh, enacting social security numbers, like everyone's going to receive this number in order to, you know, essentially to work. And people are thinking, what is this? This is crazy. This is totalitarianism. This is what we've been warned about our whole lives. America is not about this. But now the idea of receiving you know, a social insurance number is so completely blasé. It doesn't even make people bat an eyelid. And my own personal experience with this um, came in, I believe, 2004, uh, when I first came to Japan here. And I entered the country. And as you do when you are a foreign resident here in Japan, you have to register, obviously, with the government, and you get a foreign resident card, essentially, that you have to carry around with you. And mm. the police can and, uh, and legally ask you for it at any time, so you have to have it on your person. Mm. And it was just something, well, you just, you just do it, and you don't really think about it, because you don't really get stopped that much. It's not a big deal. Uh, but then I remember sitting there uh, in my apartment in Japan watching Gandhi, the 1980. Uh, Richard Attenborough biopic, mm -hmm. and watching the scene where in South Africa, Gandhi's uh, uh, organizing the movement against the, the uh, Indians having to carry their paper papers in South Africa, and he's trying, and, and so he's literally, you know, burning the papers and getting beat up for it. And I remember sitting there watching that and thinking, oh yeah, I have right in my pocket, I have the sort of the, the card and I took it completely without even thinking about it, without, mm -hmm. without any thought whatsoever. And here's people who are organizing this movement. They see it as this horrible thing. They're, they're, they're willing to be thrown in jail, beaten to a pulp, whatever it is in order to not have to accept this. How did we go from that? How did that transformation take place? It's the most insidious thing. It's the generational um, change that happens. Yeah. You, it, people like me, I'd like to think, I'm not going to take the brain chip. I'm not going to do the, you know, 100% cashless uh, digital currency from the government kind of thing. I'd like to think that I'm at the point where I, I, I have that line in the sand, but my children, my children's children. I mean, at some point this is going to be normalized and they're going to look at me as some sort of weird guy from the past for even thinking about it. The way I look at my father is weirdo because he refused to even use a bank card until I think quite recently he had to take one, but uh, he, for, for a very long time, he resisted against it. What, what's the problem, Dad? It's just a bank card. I mean, why not use it? Right. And they're always, the Trojan horse is always 
that this whatever it is is going to actually make you more free right there you can there's always ways in which you can see and, and they're certain true to some extent it does mean more freedom but there's a cost there's always a cost well i think that's only because we conflate freedom and convenience right. um there is i mean they obviously engineer a system in which it will be easier for you to accept whatever it is they're hawking and it will there will be a number of roadblocks and eventually legal restrictions against not accepting whatever it is they're trying to get you to accept and that's i think how things are generally normalized at first it's convenience and ease and then eventually there's injunctions placed against um going against the system and by that point you know even the stragglers are corralled into the pen well there's another aspect here as well which has to do with I think there's a kind of pendulum thing, like, well, I have to give an example, otherwise it won't make sense. But so I grew up in the 60s in England, progressive family leftists, and uh, they were rich, but they were supposedly socialists. And uh, so they were all about homosexual rights and, you know, equality between the ra racial equality. My grandfather helped find, found a, a peace movement and so on. Um, and so it's and it, so so i grew up thinking that those were all healthy you know compassionate values um that were about individual freedom but um now looking back in my early 50s uh, i can see where that progressive where those progressive values have have ended up so you've got the transgender movement is a very sort of concrete and tangible example now of various different things but what I'm trying to get at is is that the initial kind of appeal well first of all you've got the the kind of the Victorian era in which which there's a certain kind of restriction which is oppressive and then you've got the solution that's offered to that seems like it could only be a good thing because I mean if, if people with homosexual tendencies are being you know committed in lunatic asylums or, or beaten up or thrown in jail that seems like that's a really bad thing that's just intolerance that's just cruelty therefore it just seems logical to go all the way to the extreme and completely normalize it and so in in the mix something gets blurred over which is what actually is homosexuality and what does it mean to allow people to do what they want to do as this kind of all-inclusive right that is all about you know that's what being progressive is but I think we're at a point now where we're starting to see you know, where that leads and that yeah. actually just letting people do exactly what they want to do <coughs> if their desires and their values have already been um, conditioned into them by the, the very system that they're finding oppressive and that's giving them freedom then something isn't right there, right? People are, right. they're not actually following their natural yeah. impulses. Exactly, and, and perhaps uh, another uh, parallel with that would be the women's liberation movement. And there are, of course, a lot of, a lot of talk in the conspiracy movement about how that was steered or shaped or brought into existence by the Rockefellers or whoever in order to essentially make the half of the population that wasn't part of the workforce, an active part of the workforce and taxable and get the children into early child care services and all of that to get the children away from the parents even earlier. Now, how much of that can be really documented? I mean, we do know that uh, the CIA absolutely did fund Gloria Steinem and 
things along those lines. So there are those cookie crumbs, but to what extent this is part of a grander plan, yeah. I think is speculation to a certain extent, but it does at least have a logic to it. I mean, that is ultimately the result of it. Now there are two, um, uh, uh, two parents generally, if they are st even sticking together, are generally working full-time jobs and leaving the children you know, to be supervised by government-sponsored daycare, essentially, yeah. um, for the vast majority of their lives. And that is the ultimate effect of this. Now, uh, but again, what is, the, what is the counter to that? I mean, do you say, well, it would have been better if we had just kept the women in the kitchen kind of thing? Um, that doesn't seem to be necessarily the right answer to this. Certainly, there should be the space for people to be able to choose what they want to do. But as you bring in the other aspect of this, are they choosing what they want mm -hmm. to do? Because now there is such societal pressure against women being caretakers, home home uh, caretakers. You're staying at home, but don't you want a career? Don't you want a job? I mean, now the, the, the social pressure seems to be pushing people in a certain way. And when that happens from an early age onwards, at what point do, can we even say it's an authentic expression of who this person really is, that they want to go out and get this job or be in this career or whatever? I mean, it's just, isn't it just a... Uh, uh, sort of congregation of all their previous experiences and societal pressures are, are pushing them in this or that direction. To what extent are our choices our own? Which goes back, of course, to the, org the manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses. Uh, again, if you can manipulate people to want to go in a certain direction, then you don't even have to push them in that direction. It's, it's just part of the ethos. It's just part of the air. Yeah, and they... they they will end up believing that they're actually becoming more free and more autonomous because they're getting to do what they want. But more and more what they want depends on the state to provide it for them. So, exactly, yeah. And, and that's, yeah. The, that's the, the tenor of a lot of the research that I've done, certainly over the, of the, of the past century, is that so many of these things are pushing towards the state taking over this and that thing, which was previously handled privately. Now it's... Now it's a public institution of various sorts. So from the roots of social care, as we know it today, social services in the eugenics movement of the late 19th century, through the, the type of New Deal uh, idea of uh, cradle the grave, taking care of you to things like, yeah, so I mean, even though the, uh, the ultimate effects of things like the women's liberation movement and things in order to essentially uh, grow the workforce and uh, eat away at uh, actual wages, I mean, there's there's so many there's so many different factors. I, I don't think you can put your finger on one of them, but they all tend in the same direction, which is the growth of Leviathan, Leviathan essentially. Hmm. One roar of the stars, nothing in your night has froze. Goodbye, Oslo Rose One roar of the stars This fate and so it goes Goodbye, Oslo Rose 
the stars Nothing in your night at close Goodbye, Oslo Rose Transgender is a a very concrete example of this because if somebody wants to identify as a different sex and they want to live that life, then the only way they can do it is by resorting on the technology and the state funding and so on to actually bring about this transformation, which supposedly is in line with their true their true desire. And I mean, one of the things in Brave New World that I realised recently, I went back to looking at it in in the context of transgender, and which is just the tip of a larger thing, of course. But um, that the family is is one of the things that has to be completely eradicated for the Brave New World to function. Mm. A common theme of Fabian socialist thinking, as I'm sure you encountered in your research. Yeah, and again, there's that. It's like the ground has been made fertile because the family, by the time that these progressive ideas of Fabianism and, and whatnot were, were surfacing and being propagated, the family had become so dysfunctional that it hardly seemed, you know, like a subversive or a sinister thing to say we need to be get liberated from the oppression of the family. But it was never outright stated that in fact, you will be liberated in order to thereby become dependent on the state and on technology and something even more oppressive. There was always this, the Trojan horse was you're going to become autonomous, you're going to become mm. a true individual. Yeah. 
Yeah, it goes it goes back to that double bind that you talk about because generally these solutions that are offered maybe not not real solutions, but at any rate there are uh, something to real problems that really exist. So if you fight back then at the solutions that are offered, you seem to be on the side of the problems or the status quo that existed before. I mean, you can't raise questions about the way Child Protective Services operates if you are, I mean, does that mean you're for child abuse? Do you, I mean, there are, there are children that are being abused by their parents. I mean, you have to have something, you have to do something about that, don't you? So what, what do you do? And, and of course the state has a ready solution for this. Well, we'll just create this agency and it will have these powers to operate in this way. And, and yeah, maybe things will go awry here and there, but that's, that's just a few bad apples, but don't worry. The system is there to take care of you, generally speaking. And if you speak out against the system, then you're in favor of child abuse or whatever the whatever the case is that happens so many times they create the the sort of solution and, and it's difficult to fight back against that solution without seeming to be on the side of the problem right so that's one of the things i'm wondering what where we're going now because it seems as though people are are becoming collectively more and more aware of of the um the untrustworthy nature of the institutions and of the I don't even think it's corruption because I think it's endemic I think they were they were kind of designed that way but anyway what to the average person would be seen as corruption if a childcare agency becomes you know a front for a pedophile ring that's not a good situation it might not be corruption because it might have been set up as a front but whatever it's it's not good they can't trust you know they don't want to send their children there but if the situation is so terrible uh, that they have nowhere else to turn and they have nowhere else to turn but the institutions then th this, this could be a you know a collective double bind that's just getting more and more intense as in the, the more destabilized society becomes um, the more we need the institutions but part of what's destabilizing society is the increasing awareness that we can't trust in the institutions so so what what's going on it seems as though people have to just start again double thing they, they know that they can't trust the institutions but they they have to believe that they can trust them because the alternative isn't even right and of course that is because i i think i think part of the deliberate propaganda plan of the past century has been to inculcate in the public the the feeling of helplessness that you need some sort of state organized institution to take care of this problem. Whereas over a century ago, century and a half ago, um, medical care in, for example, in the United States concept, uh, con uh, this context was provided primarily by fraternal organizations and others that people would join uh, uh, specifically because there were so many different uh, uh, caretaking aspects to them that they, you know, they paid medical expenses and what have you. That was sort of taken over by the state and the states, um, basically the various laws that were solidified in the early part of the 20th century to bring in the, the medical industrial complex as it exists today, which works very mm -hmm. well for the insurance companies and a lot of the people in the medical industry, but of course doesn't work for the average person. But now people are in that mindset where the only possible solution to this will be having the government come in and fix the problems with the government created system because the, the sort of cultural memory that there was something before this system existed and it functioned and, and it worked has been 
has been completely diluted to the point where it's almost a sort of an arcane field of research. Oh, you're talking about something a century and a half ago. And then if that is ever brought up, the automatic knee-jerk response would be, well, yeah, that was, you know, a century and a half ago where they didn't know what was what and they were still sucking blood and whatever. I mean, now we have complicated uh, technology that requires bajillions of dollars. So we need this government organized system to do it. I think the public's imagination for believing and understanding that there are uh, solutions that we can uh, foster ourselves rather than waiting for or trying to vote in the right government to create the, the patches to the system that they themselves set up in the first place that was broken from the beginning. I mean, again, just the fact that we can't even imagine that is very much to our detriment. I wonder if it has to do with people being pushed more and more into future orientation because, I mean, one of the things that's prevalent in the in this progressive neoliberal mindset now it's more and more pervasive is is the attitude that the in the past we you know we were backward and the values were inferior to what they are now so despite all the growing evidence in the distrustworthiness of institutions and so on and so forth it's like people can still keep believing that that it's getting better right so yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's kind of hard-coded into the term itself. I mean, progressivism, we have yeah. to keep moving forward. I mean, yeah, things that, as they exist may not be great, but that's because we haven't, we haven't tinkered enough to find the right solution, which has to be something new. It can't be something old. Right. And I think you're, you're right that that idea that we could actually go to, well, what has worked in the past? And can we, can we use that again? is denigrated in all sorts of different ways. I mean, the, uh, one example that occurs immediately to me, um, sound money. Uh, gold uh, that's that's you know that's that's ancient no no uh -huh. we need something brand new and we need to to find out the right government way to administer the current the, mon the money supply and tinker with this and that again um immediate immediate reaction and from the vast majority of the public who probably has zero concept of monetary policy or how things work in the current system let alone you know what the problems might be or how to fix them the, i think the knee-jerk reaction would be oh, gold that's the what are you from the 1800s that's ridiculous mm -hmm. yeah well i think it's i mean sense i'm getting talking to you is that it's all kind of converging in in a in a blind almost religious trust in technology as opposed to human beings because it's like yeah we see that there's corruption there's bad politicians and so on but we can keep telling ourselves that was in the past because literally it is i mean as soon as you've discovered something wrong it's already in the past right so so there's something like a subterfuge we can do psychologically is just kind of forget about it as soon as we found out about it with this kind of hungry hope that because hope is not a rational thing necessarily i mean if we're desperate enough we will just hope blindly you know and the worse things get, the more desperate we'll get, the more blindly we'll hope. So my, the sense I'm getting is that people are more and more driven into this kind of totally irrational religious kind of hope, which is more and more divorced from human beings because of the being confronted with the fallibility of human beings and more and more projected onto the technology itself, that somehow the technology is going to save us. There is definitely an aspect of that. Um, and I, I don't know if that's reflected in cultural values, like our value of the latest Gugad as being the be all and end all and the thing that you must have, these these must have items. The fetishization of the technology itself yeah. probably has something to do with that. Um, but I don't think it's simply about um, techno-utopianism 
per se. It's more about the, the mindset, um, kind of a passivity that mm -hmm. I think is the, the core of this, that the solutions will be provided and your role in this is to choose from the people who are offering various ideas. Uh, that's the extent of your role. You are kind of the, the passive recipient of whatever is happening. And that's the idea of politics as a spectator sport, which is essentially the, the way that we're expected to believe this all functions in this modern developed democratic society. Mm. You're given choice A and choice B. You can choose Coke or Pepsi. And there you go. That's your power. And in fact, that power is venerated. Like this is some great thing and some noble tradition and people have fought and died for this. It's, it's important. This is what you do. You go to a booth every four years and pull a lever and you have power. Um, and I think that that's, that's the overall mindset that, is, that has been inculcated quite effectively uh, for quite a long time, that it's no longer about individual resources. It's no longer about people coming together themselves. It is more about here is a system and you can choose if the system goes slightly four degrees in this direction or slightly three degrees in that direction. And that's the extent of your participation. Crazy though, isn't it? I mean, really, it's crazy that people would still believe in the pulling of a lever, as you put it. That somehow, that's going to change the course of everything. And and the weirdest thing to me is that it really doesn't seem to matter for a large percentage of the public how many times that is disproven. Right. They will continue to fall for it. I mean, just from my own personal experience, having watched as the neocons are on their way out the door, it's 2008, hope and change. And so I at least understood why people would vote for someone like Obama and what he represented in the public psyche and the change that was going to come. Mm. I thought for sure that once people saw, mm -hmm. well, no, this is not a fundamental drastic change. I, I, I thought for sure no one would be fooled by this again. Well, it did then, make a difference, though, because it paved the way for Trump. And I was able to understand even better than with Obama why people would fall for Trump because they've seen, maybe that they've partially seen finally that the system doesn't work, so then they have to roll out the parent joker in the pack, somebody who's actually mobbed yeah. up and is kind of hacking into the yeah. system with his One would magic. hope that that is actually kind of where the system is going. It gets more and more ridiculous so that people are just voting for whatever will destroy the system until <laughs> eventually they realize that isn't going to work but how long will that take and uh, will there be anything left to vote for by the time that happens I'm not sure um, because unfortunately the one I mean regardless of what you think about uh, Russell and Huxley and, and those characters hmm. I think they were fundamentally right about the direction that society is going and the fact that we are on the cusp of technologies that truly can change humanity at a genetic level at this point let alone anything else. I mean, we are truly facing the end of humanity as we have known it in the coming generations. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound apocalyptic about it, but it, it is there, it is on the table and it is a reality that we have to face in some meaningful way with some sort of meaningful dialogue. I certainly don't pretend to have any uh, ultimate solutions to any of this, but until we start to face these issues instead of sleepwalking into them, the thing that, that constantly boggles me if we're talking about propaganda and the way the, the public is conditioned to accept certain things is the way that not only are, I mean, for example, big tech is big brother at this stage. It is the constant surveillance state, but not only have people learned to sort of accept that, but to actively embrace it. Not only, I mean, people literally not just inviting 
Google Nest and Alexa and all of these things into their home, but paying for the privilege of having these surveillance devices in their home, which again, takes it even one step further. Again, I go back to something like 1984, the literal picture of uh, absolute nightmare dystopia was having the telescreens watching you at all times. Now we literally line up to go and buy the latest telescreen so that it can surveil us. Hmm. That's an amazing um, change in psyche that's taken place. And one that unless we confront what's happening there culturally and, and economically and everything else, unless we can start to put the brakes on that impetus for us to march blindly into this, then I, I don't know. I, for, from my perspective, that's game over. Because if we can just be led along this technological path a little bit further, it it, it is turnkey totalitarianism. And who's going to turn the key? I don't know. But it can, if it's, if it's there, someone will try to turn it. Mm -hmm. I think people have been persuaded that technology is our friend. We have, because we've, they've been customized and we've been customized. There's been this slow, steady, incremental sort of shotgun marriage between us and technology to the point that we've convinced ourselves that like I say, that somehow we can trust in the technology despite all the Hollywood movies we've seen to to warn us otherwise. It's, I think it's a very infant... I think what we've been talking around today is the steady infantilization of human beings collectively to the point that they will accept, you know, a, a toy that is appealing and exciting enough. Mm. Yeah. And, as a, a robo nanny to watch hmm. over them yeah essentially yes i mean the technology in a sense is taking the place of the state in the public consciousness that it's the technology that will be your caregiver and caretaker and will 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 steward over you which is interesting to see the way that plays out in uh, the 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 sort of the cultural memes the zeitgeist surrounding the idea of the advent of artificial intelligence and yeah. And whether that plays out as the robot apocalypse Terminator style or whether that's some sort of techno utopia or whether it's some sort of combination of the two iRobot style or whatever it is. But there, there's definitely a, a cultural fascination with that concept. And I think that's, that's because we are starting to, to get changed in our mind. It's not, it's not the state as, a, as, a, as an institution that's going to be governing us. So pretty soon it's going to be the technology itself. Just a last question. I know you probably want to keep it to an hour, but... How much stock do you put in the new the UFO narrative and how it's continually being sort of tweaked and and you know polished and a, as a delivery device for some kind of transcendental technology or, or, or whatever? Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, yeah, to put it in that context, it's particularly interesting. Uh, I've done some work on this, um, talking about the you know what in conspiracy circles, the blue beam idea or, or what have you, hmm. the idea that uh, some sort of fake alien something will be used to try to transform global politics. And I've, I've examined that and whether there's actual documentation to back that up or not. And unsurprisingly, not not quite as, uh, as, as bulletproof as some people might uh, frame it. But yeah. I, so I've talked about it in that context. And I do find it interesting that the rise of the UFO narrative um, coincides perfectly with the rise of the national security state um, 47 48 the creation of the national security act and the cia and all of this and suddenly we have this ufo narrative in roswell and uh, going from there so i think it's it's not coincidental that those things are related and and i tend to see this entire narrative in that framework as a convenient cover for who knows what what 
technology the Pentagon is working on in the Skunk Works. I mean, we can't even begin to imagine what sort of technology is there. One way that we might get a glimpse of that is in some sort of World War III scenario, in the way that World War I blew people's minds in terms of the way technology transformed the meaning of what even warfare is in the public consciousness. I think a similar absolute seismic shift will happen if and when there is sort of the open outbreak of real hostilities again on that level. I even make the argument perhaps we're in some sort of World War III that may be being waged in, in ways that we don't even understand at this point. But, um, mm -hmm. but uh, so I, I, I've always put that, that UFO narrative in that context. It is just a convenient way of, of having national security blanket and, and uh, secrecy and then to mislead people in a different direction over what this, the security state is really doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, to to put it in the context of this narrative of the techno-utopia or the techno-messiah or whatever, uh, it is interesting that, of course, one of the, the themes of the ufologists, <laughs> I don't even know how to say that word, <laughs> um, is that uh, our modern technology was seeded, um, was at, at the very least discovered in the you know, Roswell crash or whatever and reverse engineered. That is where this modern um, uh, age of computing came from, according to that narrative. And so it, what, is the, what is the way that narrative would play out? I mean, suddenly there's some sort of other crash and we get some other technology and look, everybody hears the technology from, from the gods, from up high, from whatever, from you know, the, the mimetic idea of something falling from the sky. And here it is, and this will save the world. This is the new technology we need. It's whatever, the perfect green energy or whatever it is, which would mm -hmm. then, of course, by people of duplicitous ideas could be some sort of backdoor Trojan to controlling society. Again, I, I mean, there are many ways this could play out. It's completely speculative on my part at this point, but it is interesting to put that in that framework. Mm, well, one of the things I speculate about in this context is are people being uh, sort of tested over the years to see how much they will believe? Like, it seems as though people are, that their ability to believe the unbelievable and to fall for fakes is, is becoming more and more prodigious and so at a certain mm -hmm. point if people I think we can all think of our own favorite things in conspiracy theory land that are examples of that where are there people who really believe this uh, I mean I'm I'm not convinced at first there were but now there seem to be and perhaps that is the test you know it, certain obviously now so much of our reality is mediated through social media just put the right ideas and memes in the social media and see if they take off and and see how to manipulate that and to fine-tune the propaganda so that it um, starts to propagate itself. I mean, uh, again, that's the ultimate um, goal of any propagandist is to make the propaganda um, uh, propulse itself through the society. And I have no doubt there are certain tests going on as to what, uh, what ideas can we make people believe and then start to, uh, to proselytize others about. I hear a voice that's not my own Tells me to jump into the sea I'm tired of listening to these words I know they aren't meant for me I know they aren't meant for me I won't listen That is the end of my conversation with James Corbett. 
This is the Limitless, the podcast between. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by various different means and methods, including just commenting, sharing your thoughts, and sharing this audio podcast with other people, and so on and so forth. Next week's Limitless is with Rodney Asher. From long ago and only resonate now it's hard to tell which thoughts are my own When I keep hearing everyone else I keep hearing everyone else I won't listen Some point they become the family of 